Hello and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up With Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you'll notice several windows on the console. We do encourage you to move these to your liking and minimize what you don't need. Uh, there's a group chat available to communicate with the other viewers if you are interested. You're also able to submit questions for the faculty, which I see a few of you are, have already found by clicking the Q&A button to the left of the slide window. These questions will be addressed during our Q&A session. And at the conclusion, you'll also be able to access the evaluation and a test for credit by clicking that claim credit button. Uh, we are pleased to welcome our expert faculty members, Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and Dr. Paul Long, Assistant Professor of Medicine in General Internal Medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater and Dr. Long, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Faith. Great to be here and glad so many could join. Thank you, and hello, everyone. Thank you, you too. Um, and these are our faculty's disclosures. Uh, this educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the planning committee members and faculty presenters. Uh, please do note that this material um, is presented live, but is also be available on demand. Um, so this is current as of August 11th, 2021. If you are watching this on demand, we do encourage you to um, stay up to date um, on the NIH and IDSA website for the most up-to-date contemporary guidance. Today's learning objectives are to appraise the efficacy, safety, and indications for treatments for patients with COVID requiring hospitalization, to evaluate management strategies for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID, and to explain the mechanisms of action of monoclonal antibodies and other current and in-development treatments for COVID-19, as well as describe the best practices for managing patients with COVID-19 with monoclonal antibodies and other agents. I will pass this off to Dr. Alwater to kick it off. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Alwater. Okay, thank you. And, uh, uh, you know, certainly we have been whipsawed a bit uh, by uh, the coronavirus and the Delta variant has thrown uh, quite a wrinkle with uh, many hospitals now again filling up ICU beds, especially in areas where uh, there are lower rates of immunization. Uh, what I'd like to do first is sort of kick off with just a, some basic overview and issues that you may be familiar with, certainly for taking care of hospitalized patients but things are changing. For example, the clinical course outlined here was sort of uh, the sense of what happened in that most people were asymptomatic and about 20% or so uh, developed severe illness enough to warrant hospitalization uh, with a small minority in the ICU. But as we've had an immunized older population and people with risk factors being more immunized than the younger population, this is shifting. Uh, a bit, which certainly is helpful, and hopefully we won't have quite as dramatic uh, 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 hospitalization rates as we had seen uh, early in 2020 in the pandemic. But this remains to be seen, as the Delta virus is much more transmissible. So uh, typically, the COVID-19 illness can be mild, but for those that progress, it's usually about a week after onset of symptoms when often in immunocompetent people, this is when the immune system really engages with the virus and you get this hyperinflammatory response. Uh, some people still use the term cytokine storm, which is probably not as severe as a true cytokine storm, but can clearly uh, have a significant inflammation and then uh, also cause tissue injury with uh, adult uh, respiratory distress syndrome being the most feared complication, but you can also have multi-organ system problems. In those first few days of illness, this is where antivirals and potentially antibody-based therapies seem to have a role in decreasing the amount of virus that might go on to infect other cells or cause tissue damage, but it's in that second week of illness where so-called immunomodulators uh, seem to have more play. So it's, a, it's really a complex viral illness uh, where uh, you have to sort of integrate issues related to timing, uh, host factors, for example, 
uh, to try to develop the best uh, kinds of uh, therapeutics and um, uh, those considerations. Now, in terms of who has these greatest risks for, for severe illness, even normal people, you know, you've no doubt seen and uh, taken care of patients that might seemingly not have risk factors and be in their 20s or 30s and yet have severe illness. This is true not only for COVID, but for other viral illnesses adenovirus and influenza. So that's no surprise. But the menu of conditions that really significantly increase the risk, the CDC has sort of gone to more of an evidence basis. So you can see on that far left-hand side of the uh, column, the kinds of conditions that seem to place people at greatest risk. Of course, we know age, especially age over 80, is a, a very serious risk factor for death. Uh, but any of these are contributory and they are multipliers. And the ones that I think um, that you're probably aware of is that even uh, obesity that's um, not morbid obesity, BMI of over 30, uh, seems to be a central factor that might also uh, be part of uh, heart disease, diabetes, and other factors as well. And pregnancy, again, has been confirmed as a very a significant risk factor. Indeed, just last week, uh, help participate in the care of two uh, pregnant patients who are hospitalized. And these, you know, uh, one in the first trimester, one in the third trimester. Uh, there's other evidence that's not nearly as strong, but the CDC is really liberalized to include people in that first and second column uh, for conditions that um, uh, may make for uh, more severe illness. Uh, the other factors, uh, which aren't really medical, as it were, but really have to do perhaps with uh, socioeconomic factors and access to care, is that uh, certain um, ethnicities and races, uh, specifically blacks, also uh, people of the Latinx community or Native Alaskans or uh, Indian um, Native Americans, all have increased risk for acquiring the disease hospitalization and death. So um, at least in the outpatient world where I also uh, try to help uh, develop advice and I still do a little bit of primary care myself, um, we have uh, a patient just to start as a framing device with Mr. A, a 52-year-old man, he does have high blood pressure, but he's a smoker. He has a 30-pack year history, and he's been sick for about a day with flu-like symptoms, and he's PCR positive. And so in the outpatient world, what treatments can we give him? We don't yet have oral antivirals. We don't have uh, oseltamivir or um, equivalent or anything like that, although those uh, issues may um, uh, soon change, perhaps later in the fall. But for these ambulatory patients, especially with high risk factors, um, uh, there's some general guidance that we always give about monitoring symptoms, uh, offering supportive care, and also not infecting others. So there's isolation for people that have clearly the, have positive disease or have lost taste and smell, for example, that's a pretty good indication that they're infected. And you're, the isolation is currently recommended for 10 days or at least 24 hours after resolution of fever and uh, significant symptoms. Um, quarantine is the technical term that is used for close contacts, and the CDC defines that as 15 minutes of cumulative uh, exposure over a 24-hour period. And um, it's still 14 days, but if you do testing um, and it's negative, you can uh, come out of that closed quarantine. Now, uh, in terms of interventions for Mr. A, there's really only antibody-based therapies at the moment. And uh, these come in the form of monoclonal antibodies, which the FDA has now approved for people in risk groups. Um, and uh, the one that's uh, been most widely used is casirivimab and indivimab. This is a combination monoclonal cocktail that targets uh, uh, epitopes on the spike protein, the main protein of the virus involved in docking to the ACE2 receptor and entering cells. And this large phase three trial of over 4,000 patients showed uh, a rather marked reduction 
with either of the two doses administered, with now the FDA uh, choosing the 1200, the lower dose, offering a nearly 70% um, risk reduction of hospitalization or death. So uh, I think for the high-risk patients, it's clear that this does offer um, a significant benefit. Um, and another a monoclonal antibody has also been authorized under emergency use. This is citrovimab. Uh, this is a single uh, monoclonal antibody. It actually was um, uh, uh, developed from a patient that had SARS-CoV-1, the original SARS from over 20 years ago. But it binds to a very conservative uh, spot on the receptor binding domain of the spike protein that's conserved. And interestingly, it also is a, a larger uh, a monoclonal antibody. So it actually probably has a three month or more uh, duration of effectiveness. And here in a smaller trial, you got a very similar risk reduction of hospitalization or death uh, over 85%. And so this also has received emergency use authorization. Now, um, what you don't see is the original uh, monoclonals that were approved back uh, in 2020, bamlanivimab, and, and then this was added to etisivimab. The uh, Health and Human Services, which has been paying for these monoclonals, have stopped distributing it because some of the variants, beta and gamma, which you haven't heard as much of, but beta, which was first described in South Africa, gamma in Brazil, um, have marked uh, limitations in uh, uh, in vitro assays, which they call pseudo-neutralization assays, at um, uh, rendering the virus non-infectious. So for that reason, um, it's not currently recommended to be used um, with the casirimab and sotrovimab uh, still um, effective. So who can get these? Now, uh, in any given state, this is where you have to look up and see where they're, um, it can be infused. Many emergency departments may have these uh, drugs or uh, states have set up infusion centers in Maryland. Um, we have at least four infusion centers that have been set up by the state in addition to emergency departments. And anyone that's at high risk or um, uh, 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 with those um, uh, conditions that we discussed earlier qualify, it's adolescents or adults. And um, although you can give it in the first 10 days, honestly, you really want to give it in the first seven, unless if someone's profoundly immune suppressed and you don't think that they may have responded, for example, to their vaccine. It does require some monitoring because it's an IV infusion, uh, but there are some other caveats as well. And the health uh, uh, care, um, the health uh, care worker provider fact sheets are listed below. And here's the criteria again, which essentially is developed um, from those CDC risk factors and were expanded to even include those with a little less evidence basis uh, because these drugs are uh, honestly quite safe and can be uh, effective at preventing hospitalization or death. So uh, at the moment, these drugs, uh, these compounds, the monoclonal antibodies remain effective. I think there are barriers to use because um, it's an IV infusion. You have to go to certain centers. Uh, it's best to be referred by uh, primary care people, although many centers um, will also take histories from patients and, and give it. Um, and it is not authorized for use for hospitalized patients uh, because uh, at least the trials to date haven't found that it was very effective. So uh, in terms of some of the main uh, professional organizations or agencies that have issued recommendations for COVID-19, the NIH does recommend the use of the two that we discussed, as does the Infectious Disease Society of America for those um, that are still in the outpatient world uh, that have the risk factors for disease. Uh, but this is certainly something that may um, uh, change over time, especially if there is emergence of additional variants. I did want to uh, uh, mention two additional factors that may be of interest. Uh, this is a new, this is new from late July that the emergency use authorization of by the FDA for this combination uh, cocktail was expanded to include post-exposure prophylaxis. So someone that just had exposure to a close contact 
uh, based on this study of households. So uh, people that um, were given either placebo or a sub-Q injection of the same dose the, as treatment dose, that's 1,200 milligrams, found there was a definite reduction in developing um, uh, COVID-19 symptomatically, a little less uh, for both asymptomatic and symptomatic. But uh, this is a role uh, that I think is important in many uh, places are trying to operate, operationalize this so you can give these monoclonals. Uh, the last one is something that may uh, be important for the hospitalist uh, audience and your patients. And that is, again, the same antibody, casarivimab and divimab, were studied in the recovery trial. The recovery trial is a large, pragmatic uh, United Kingdom study, which has uh, led to dexamethasone use and uh, other um, uh, uh, information for other interventions for COVID-19. And, and recovery has this benefit of working through the National Health Service, so you get these huge numbers, I mean, almost 10,000 in the recovery trial for examining this monoclonal. And uh, this was an open label trial, but, um, and most people were already getting dexamethasone. Um, and the median time for enrollment was quite late at nine days into illness. But interestingly, what was found is that although the overall um, study was negative, if you can see the bars on the right, uh, 21 and 20%, really no difference in 28-day mortality. If you look at people that and, uh, got the drug when they were seronegative, meaning their body really didn't mount a sufficient immune response, there was a difference in mortality. And this was a very large dose. This was four grams of each antibody. So this was done, um, again, this is a sub-analysis, but it does speak to the fact that antibodies may be yet effective for some hospitalized patients, especially those that haven't mounted uh, antibodies that may be important for viral clearance. And it also helped prevent people from going on to mechanical ventilation. So um, we have uh, Mr. A's uh, case here. Um, and so uh, two days afterwards, he had a telehealth uh, appointment and he didn't want to get the monoclonal antibody infusion, but he's now feeling worse, uh, is triaged and has these vital signs of 39 degrees um, Celsius. He's a bit hypertensive and tachycardic and tachypnic, but importantly, his pulse oximetry reading is in the 80s. So uh, Dr. Paul Long, um, uh, this sounds uh, like someone that uh, may end up uh, under your care. Um, so we're going to. Yeah, I agree. Uh, <laughs> so I, I agree. From here? Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's let's transition from the ambulatory world to the hospitalized world here, uh, and let's focus on a few therapeutic agents. Uh, um, but before we get, in, I think we have to talk about the unfortunate reality that we're watching the trends in hospitalization uh, now uh, rise again. I think this is a little bit more than painful for a lot of us. Um, in the community, and certainly we want to spend time here talking about the therapeutics that we can be giving in the hospital, but also recognize the importance of uh, um, the need for our public health communications and, and vaccination strategies. Um, with regards to antiviral therapy in the hospital, we're going to be talking about just uh, remdesivir here, and specifically this one trial, the ACT-1 trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, back in November, I believe. And the question for this trial was amongst hospitalized patients uh, with COVID who had evidence of lower respiratory tract infection, was there benefit with regards to time to recovery? And they had matched patients into the remdesivir and placebo arm in just over 500 uh, patients. And you look at the median time since onset of symptoms was around nine days. And with this primary endpoint, which was time to recovery, and this was the big thing that was held on to, is uh, that there was a, a significant difference uh, between 10 days and 15. 15 days. And that rate ratio for recovery was 1.29. And then as you look at mortality, there was a, there was a trend towards a mortality benefit. Um, the study actually uh, initially had been set to measure for a period of 15 days, but then was adjusted uh, uh, to monitor for a period of 29 days. So if you look at that specific data, um, while there was mortality benefit seen uh, with 11.4% versus placebo, it was not statistically significant. 
So then if you break down the data into subgroup analysis, and, th and this is the big point that's guided a lot, uh, it's, uh, guided a lot of the guidelines out there, patients receiving oxygen had the most benefit in this study. And then if you look over on the right, patients receiving mechanical ventilation ended up having the least benefit. And this again goes to the idea that this, uh, if we can treat before there's this massive inflammatory response or this cytokine storm, they're gonna see more benefit. If you look at the adverse events, actually, there was less in the remdesivir group than in the placebo group. And the things that I think about uh, that are important when I'm thinking about remdesivir is this uh, renal function specifically, uh, and certainly uh, not to be used in GFR less than 30, and then also ALT, ALST elevation. Um, and I've generally been avoiding it when we've been seeing uh, those at five times uh, upper limit of normal. Uh, and then if you look at grade three or four adverse events, uh, remdesivir, amongst all the adverse events, remdesivir had 51% and the placebo was 57%. This was a study that was uh, done amongst five hospital systems in the Baltimore and DC area. It was published in JAMA. Uh, it was a case control study with uh, just over 2,000 uh, patients. And then they ended up matching 285 who received remdesivir with controls. And just like the ACT-1 trial showed that there was benefit with regards to clinical improvement uh, for patients who were hospitalized, and that being five days versus seven days for the control arm. Uh, mortality, again, there was a trend towards benefit, but not statistically significant. And then the remdesivir plus steroid uh, um, group together actually showed a longer time to improvement. And then there was a similar 28-day uh, mortality in that group. This is a ginormous trial, uh, the solidarity trial uh, that the WHO uh, has uh, overseen. It was an open label trial and there are uh, uh, over 10,000 people, 2,700 uh, of which were on remdesivir. Uh, and in the remdesivir arm, this reported that there was no impact on mortality or need for ventilation or length of the hospital stay. Um, and then in this study, there was no placebo group. There's been some questions of, um, uh, some parts of the trial uh, in the heterogeneity, um, obviously, as you would have such a massive trial, there's going to be some heterogeneity. Um, but as far as the selection, the treatment assessment, adherence, and follow-up, uh, and the remdesivir arm is still ongoing in this trial. So this had led to the NIH and IDSA guidelines for remdesivir, which are, are similar in that for hospital patients requiring supplemental oxygen, but not through, an, uh, uh, they recommend it, but not necessarily for patients with mechanical ventilation or on ECMO, and that's for initiation. Um, switching over to convalescent plasma, and this is, I have a limited experience with this. Our hospital, I think, had done a few cases back in summer 2020. So I'll pass the mic to Dr. Alwater here in a sec to comment on this a little bit more. Uh, but the, uh, generally, the way as I've thought about this as a hospitalist is this is, uh, you know, FFP for patients that have been recently infected and recover from COVID. And so the possible mechanisms of actions include direct neutralization of the virus and then controlling of the hyperinflammation. And if you look at that, the impact is similar to IVIG. And then also this TH1 to TH17 ratio, which these are markers, I believe, on CD4. And TH17 has been linked uh, to uh, pathologic inflammation uh, uh, for COVID. Um, and then also the immunomodulation of a hypercoagulable state. Uh, there was an EUA that was in February that was released for only high titer plasma in hospitalized patients. This was a study uh, that was done comparing high titer uh, convalescent plasma to medium and to low titer. There was no control arm here. Uh, it was amongst 3,000 patients. As you can see, many of the patients were sick in the ICU was 60%, and then actually uh, a third of the patients were mechan on mechanical ventilation. And they looked at overall 30-day mortality. And actually, there was a benefit for all patients in 30-day mortality, uh, um, which you can see in the chart on the right, uh, both for all patients and then patients not on mechanical ventilation. There were some limitations to this study, and it was retrospective. There was no control arm uh, as well. So there's a this is a meta-analysis uh, that was done. It's a compilation of uh, 10 uh, studies. There were four peer-reviewed randomized controlled trials, five, and then five reprints and one press release. Uh, a lot of this data came out of the recovery trial. And again, there was uh, some difficult to synthesize evidence across these trials. So one is the treatment since time onset range from 72 hours to any time. There are various plasma titers, various doses. 
uh, oxygen supplementation varied, the control arm were differences, and then there were median age ranges from 48 to 76 years. And what this style showed is that within mortality and then also time to recovery, there was no benefit seen. I'm going to pass this back to Dr. Auerwater because I think you can probably provide a little more detailed understanding of convalescent plasma and some review of the literature. Yeah, yeah thank you, Paul. I, you know, I, I think convalescent plasma is, has been tricky. Uh, it was widely used last summer with the expanded access program. You showed the slide on the joiner data. And I think many of us at that time were impressed that if people got high titer units, um, uh, that it, it may have been helpful. What sort of has happened with the literature is, for example, the recovery trial, that, uh, which really provided most of the weighting here against uh, it having an impact on mortality, uh, was given late in the illness. So average was day nine. Uh, and uh, other studies, which we don't have time to go through, suggest that if you give high titer plasma early in illness, um, it, it may have benefit in terms of uh, avoiding uh, mechanical ventilation, death, and so on. So uh, I think we have used it a little more liberally um, than uh, your hospital system, um, especially once high titer units became uh, noted as such uh, earlier this year. Uh, and we've used it in groups where uh, people may not respond well to vaccines, so people that uh, have uh, been immunized, but uh, maybe on rituximab, for example, or solid organ transplants, or for people that are presenting pretty early in illness. Uh, so not day nine, but if they're presenting day three, four, or five, uh, when they may not yet have really mounted sufficient immune response. What's gotten a little tricky now is with the Delta variant, a lot of our plasma uh, probably was uh, harvested from people that uh, survived um, alpha virus, uh, the alpha variant, for example, or or maybe even the ancestral strain. And we're not sure how effective that is here. So, uh, you know, given druthers, um, I would rather infuse the monoclonal antibody, which we can't at the moment uh, under EUA because it's not authorized for hospital use, but that likely would be more effective in these uh, patient populations. So that recovery trial, the monoclonals, I found very interesting for people that were seronegative, but uh, we'll have to wait and see if uh, the FDA uh, further expands or, or gives approval on that. But I think convalescent plasma has a role, but you'd probably want to use more recently obtained units that um, you know may have been harvested post-Delta virus infection. And of course, um, uh, most of the units now are probably from earlier this year. Great. Thank you. So this is... Uh slide on this uh, guidelines from the NIH and EDSA. So in hospitalized patients with impaired immunity, insufficient evidence to recommend for or against high titer plasma. And then in hospital patients without impaired immunity, recommends against the use of plasma in patients on mechanical ventilation, except in a clinical trial in patients not on mechanical ventilation. And then in the IDSA, among patients hospitalized with COVID, the panel suggests against COVID-19 uh, convalescent plasma. And then uh, among ambulatory patients with mild to moderate COVID, the panel recommends COVID-19 convalescent plasma only in the context of a clinical trial. So let's switch gears here uh, to immunomodulatory um, uh, medications, starting first with dexamethasone, which probably for many of you, the, the shift here uh, was a little bit more than painful uh, you know, in the early stages and back in spring 2020 as I work so hard to avoid uh, steroids in so many patients, um, it, was, it was painful to see the evidence, although exciting uh, um, at the same time uh, on its benefit. So the, this, let's look at the recovery trial specifically. Um, so this was a study, as Dr. Arwin mentioned, that took place in the UK, and there was uh, 2,100 patients in the dexamethasone arm and 4,300 in the control arm. If you look specifically at mortality, uh, there's clearly benefit um, across patient classes. So overall, uh, there's a mortality uh, uh, benefit for patients who are um, ventilate, uh, ventilated and on oxygen, um, but not seen on those on oxygen. If you actually look over to the right, uh, patients not on oxygen, those who were in the dexamethasome arm had a greater mortality at 17% compared to those in the usual care. So the conclusion, and this was the big, was that this was the first drug to show mortality benefit in certain groups, uh, specifically on mechanical ventilation or on oxygen. But those not on oxygen tended to do worse. And this was a pragmatic open label trial. Um, 
So this is a summary here, and this will tr transition over towards Dr. Arwater as we transition over to talking about some monoclonal antibody therapies, but focusing specifically on the NIH treatment guidelines. And for those hospitalists or internists or out there, I, I have uh, leaned heavily on the, the NIH treatment guidelines. They're easy to access online, um, and, and there's some great summary summaries underneath these recommendations uh, pointing to some uh, pretty important uh, papers. Um, but really, generally, there's four big bins here. Those patients that are hospitalized that do not require supplemental oxygen, patients that are hospitalized and require supplemental oxygen, then those that are hospitalized and require more oxygen in the form of high flow or non-invasive ventilation, and then that group that a lot of us hospitalists may not necessarily always be seeing, that group talking about initiation and hospitalized that require invasive ventil uh, mechanical ventilation or ECMO. But if we go back to the first bin, those patients that are hospitalized but not on oxygen, the NIH recommends the against dexamethasone or other corticosteroids. And again, that highlights the fact that there was not benefit seen uh, in this group. And then there's insufficient data for against the routine use of remdesivir. And this is highlighting the fact that there is some uh, mixed data. So the ACT-1 trial uh, um, did not show necessarily benefit within this subgroup, but there's other studies uh, uh, that have shown uh, some benefit. And then if you look for the, with, uh, in the bin of the hospitalized patients that require supplemental oxygen, uh, they will recommend remdesivir uh, and then also dexamethasone plus remdesivir, especially for those who have increasing amounts of supplemental oxygen or whose inflammatory markers are rising, and then dexamethasone if uh, remdesivir is not available. And then within that third bin for those patients that are hospitalized who are requiring uh, more oxygen, form of high flow or non-invasive ventilation, they recommend the following, dexamethasone or dexamethasone plus remdesivir, uh, and then for recently hospitalized, rapidly increasing oxygen needs, or if your systemic inflammatory response is uh, on the rise, uh, baricitinib or tisiluzumab, uh, which Dr. Auerwater will talk about in a second. And then for that last bin here, for hospitalized patients requiring invasive me uh, mechanical ventilation or ECMO, uh, recommend the initiation of dexamethasone. Again, that's supported by the recovery trial. And then uh, patients who are within 24 hours uh, of ICU admission, a combination of dexamethasone and tocilizumab. They actually do not recommend the initiation of remdesivir uh, for patients who are uh, within the, um, this setting. And the IDSA guidelines, we don't need to go through in detail, but I think it's worth just mentioning that uh, for the most part, they overlap very nicely with the NIH guidelines. Um, I think the one difference here is, uh, uh, and probably owing to the fact that they just have three bins where they've grouped those patients who are hospitalized with a little bit of oxygen um, and those who are on uh, you know, high flow or non-invasive ventilation into one group here in the middle. But it's with regards to the timing of tocilizumab uh, initiation. I put this slide in here and, and I think this, you know, every health system is gonna take these guidelines and, and for the most part do a lot of similar things and, and, and some things a little differently. But I thought it might be helpful here to uh, just show uh, my ho my hospital's uh, guidelines and what's been come up with our treatment protocol. And what we've been doing is for those who have been uh, admitted uh, uh, and diagnosed with COVID with a PCR positive or symptoms with uh, less than five days, we've been starting remdesivir regardless of uh, um, uh, oxygenation status. And then if they clinically worsen to the category of severe, uh, uh, such as having a, a saturation less than 94% or requiring an oxygen requirement, then we initiate dexamethasone. Uh, and then there's that last bin, which we're gonna transition to talking about with regards to initiating tocilizumab. So let me uh, read this case and then I'll pass it over to Dr. Alvarez. So Mr. A is given remdesivir and started on dexamethasone. Over the next 72 hours, he has worsening hypoxic res uh, respiratory failure and is transferred to the ICU and started on BiPAP. He's also noted to have increasing CRP. What are the next steps? So Dr. Alvarez, do you mind commenting here and, and, and chirping in on what you might do? Yeah, so this is a... Um... Uh, the scenario where unfortunately people are getting worse despite uh, the use of an antiviral and uh, the dexamethasone. And uh, uh, we probably uh, in our hospital would use tocilizumab, although there are some other options uh, as well, with the idea that here's someone that has an elevated inflammatory marker, they're clearly in that hyperinflammatory phase later into illness, often the second week uh, of illness. And um, uh, the idea is, is there, are there some specific inhibitors 
that can try to help gamma modulate these inflammatory responses, stave off um, uh, invasive mechanical ventilation or, or worse illness. So, uh, uh, you know, as Paul mentioned, um, we're uh, in an ever-changing environment, and tocilizumab is one of those stories that if you go back to the winter of 2020, remember the Chinese national guidelines uh, suggested its use because of this hyperinflammatory response. And then, uh, hard to see in this slide, but a number of trials that looked at it at monotherapy were not uh, didn't show benefit when done in a careful manner. So I think it fell out of favor and we used it a bit uh, and then stopped using it by the late spring, early summer of 2020. But then some trials began to show benefit. Uh, the IMPACTA trial is one that was very well done in a number of countries that showed uh, a combined benefit in terms of avoiding mechanical ventilation or death. And then uh, a number of other studies were also performed, including uh, the recovery trial, again, this massive trial in large numbers that suggested benefit. Um, and these were generally um, in people that um, uh, were admitted needed oxygen and uh, uh, were not yet in long-term ICU care on a ventilator. And uh, the people that benefited, if you look under the use of corticosteroids, were those on steroids, not people that uh, weren't on steroids. And the interesting part, both with that earlier impact stu uh, study, also this recovery study, is that 70, 80% of these people were now on steroids and you were adding tocilizumab. So it looks like tocilizumab didn't have much effect if used alone, but when used in addition, to uh, dexamethasone uh, appeared to have impact in clinical trials. There is also um, another trial called REMAP-CAP, uh, which you can see in the middle of this meta-analysis that also suggests benefit again, most of these patients were on steroids. So overall, in part because of the recovery trial and the trials that really uh, included people mostly on dexamethasone, it looked like tocilizumab staved off in uh, invasive mechanical ventilation or death. So where we use it in our hospital system is people that are on dexamethasone remdesivir, and it looks like they're progressing. They're getting worse. They have a high CRP over seven and a half, for example. Um, they're needing high flow oxygen, look like they're heading to an intermediate care or ICU care or mechanical ventilation. And we'll give an eight milligram per kilogram dose of the tocilizumab. Now, uh, another uh, drug which probably works very similarly is baricitinib. Uh, an early trial, the ACT2 trial there, this is a, uh, a JAK1, JAK2 in, uh, inhibitor that serve, uh, decreases inflammasomes and has some downstream effects on the inflammatory cascade. The ACT2 trial, which was done right after the remdesivir trial by the NIH, uh, showed about a one-day benefit, but most of these patients were not yet on corticosteroids. A more recent trial, the COVE barrier trial, uh, had 1,500 patients, about 80% were on steroids. And in this trial, uh, it looked like there was a ben mortality benefit. Uh, but interestingly, a lot of these patients were uh, uh, received this drug overseas in Brazil and elsewhere, and they didn't get remdesivir. Only about 20% in this group got remdesivir in this COVID barrier trial. So I think for this reason, that's why you may have seen baricitinib uh, recommended by the NIH and IDSA guidance. And so they say you can use either. Personally, I think the uh, the study is uh, the study material is weaker for baricitinib. Um, sometimes we use it for people that can't take dexamethasone. Uh, uh, so tocilizumab is probably more widely used, but both um, NIH and IDSA recommend it for people with evidence of progression. They're getting more ill. They're in that hyperinflammatory phase, already receiving dexamethasone. So, um, you know, what happened to Mr. A was that uh, he did receive also tocilizumab and improved, uh, was able to uh, not head into the ICU care and was subsequently discharged. So uh, he had a successful um, uh, uh, approach from these treatments, but of course not every patient uh, uh, fits that bill 
at all. But now I'm going to just turn it over to Paul for a few minutes about a very important topic um, before we get to our post-test and uh, question and answers. Yeah, let's briefly touch on this topic. I think, um, as you know, especially as a hospitalist, you know, uh, this is something that comes up a bunch with regards to how to approach anticoagulation. And again, I, and especially, I, I think this is good because there's studies all the time that are coming out. And the, uh, in fact, there was one just published in the New England Journal this past week that was uh, very interesting and likely sh will inform some of the guideline recommendations. But if you look at the NIH and what they recommend, so in hospitalized patients with COVID-19, hematologic and coagulation parameters are commonly measured, although there is currently insufficient evidence to recommend for or against using this data to guide management decisions. Then I think the next recommendation is key here. So hospitalized non-pregnant adults with COVID-19 should receive prophylactic dose anticoagulation, which is what most all of us are doing. And then there's currently insufficient evidence to recommend either for or against the use of prophylactic dose of anticoagulation for VT prophylaxis in hospitalized COVID-19 patients. I think there is some variability in practice across different systems. I know our, my institution at Boston Medical Center, uh, for patients who have a very high D-dimer level, and we're going with eight times the upper limit of normal, we'll actually provide intermediate dosing uh, uh, anticoagulation. Um, going to the next slide, this is the study that was uh, published uh, just um, uh, last week in the New England Journal. So this looked at non-critically ill patients. An initial strategy of therapeutic dose anticoagulation with heparin increased the probability of survival to discharge with reduced use of cardiovascular or respiratory organ support. So the probability that therapeutic anticoagulation increased organ support free days compared to usual care prophylaxis was 98.6%. And then the adjusted absolute difference in survival between therapeutic and usual care prophylaxis was 4%. And so I think there's probably more to come and as we're experiencing with everything here, you know, as new studies come, they're gonna be shaping guidelines a little differently. Um, but overall, to summarize everything that we've talked about here, so let's go through each point. So monoclonal antibody treatments are available for outpatients at high risk of progressing to severe disease or hospitalization. Secondly, antiviral treatment with remdesivir is FDA approved for all hospitalized patients, but recommendations for use vary by organization and center. Patients on oxygen but not requiring mechanical ventilation or ECMO benefit most according to the ACT-1 trial, which we reviewed, and duration of illness reduced by median of five days according to the ACT-1 trial. Antiviral and antibody-based therapies appear to work best if administered as early as possible. And then dexamethasone has lowered mortality rates in patients with severe and critical COVID. Fantastic. Um, Dr. Allwater and Dr. Long, really thank you so much for all of that invaluable information um, for our learners today. Um, we are going to move into the Q&A section now. So as a reminder, um, to submit a question, please click the Q&A button at the bottom of your console. Uh, we will try to get to as many as time allows. Um, however, uh, we have so many good ones I see here. We may go over time, but we will do our best to answer these in upcoming webinars. So please do register for those to see if we answer your question. I'm gonna start with our first question. Um, and I'll pass this one to Dr. Allwater. Um, isn't the post-exposure prophylaxis study of monoclonal, body, monoclonal antibodies in unvaccinated patients? How do we extrapolate the results in consideration of vaccinated patients? Yeah, so uh, I think this is uh, a pointed question that's excellent. Indeed, I should have pointed out all these studies were done really earlier in, in the year before people were immunized. Uh, so uh, there obviously will be less benefit um, even in your high-risk patients. However, here's how I think of it in the immunized patients. If there are people that are particularly fragile especially we know people over the age of 80 don't respond as well to the vaccine. That's one group I think about. And of course, anyone that's immunosuppressed may not respond well to the vaccine. Whether anyone with those risk factors and immunized need it, I think is not a clear question uh, that can be answered right now. Um, and I don't quite worry as much in people that have heart failure, but otherwise, you know, pretty healthy and are 50 and get the vaccine. So it's really in those subgroups who are immunized that I would uh, more worry about, but anyone that's unimmunized in those groups, of course, can still uh, benefit as uh, the studies indicate. Okay, thank you very much. And speaking of vaccines, 
what is the guidance for a booster dose of vaccine, especially in light of this Delta variant? <laughs> Maybe I'll take that one. Um, so uh, I think there are indications there will be uh, booster dose recommendations for certain populations in the United States. Uh, probably people that are immunosuppressed, uh, perhaps um, the elderly, it's not clear yet. Uh, we know uh, the United Kingdom, Israel, and other countries, France, are already recommending booster doses. The WHO has asked that booster doses be held, uh, if they can, for distribution to areas of the world which don't have enough vaccine. Uh, you know, this is obviously a fraught issue. We have lots of infection now in the United States. The good news is we're not seeing a lot of breakthrough cases causing hospitalization. Um, but uh, I think we'll see in the forthcoming weeks uh, some recommendations for a booster dose. For the moment, under the EUA, um, uh, there there's no uh, guidance or recommendation or allowance for it. Uh, I'll uh, mention that, of course, with FDA approval, if that is the case, uh, for example, Pfizer, which is probably going to be the first approved, then it's up to the clinician to decide on the need for booster doses. Great. Thank you for that information. Um, and I'll ask this one uh, to Dr. Long. So, Dr. Long, how is inflammation assessed in practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So, some of the inflammatory markers that we've been using in the early months, I mean, I was ordering a whole bunch of inflammatory markers. The ones that I focused in on are CRP, uh, LDH, and ferritin levels and those are the ones that i've been predominantly anchoring on uh for my practice um dr alwater have there's certainly variability here so it's worth sort of two clinicians chirping in here and uh and uh, on this so dr alwater you probably have a few more or maybe some different ones that you've been relying on no i think the c-reactive protein i mean initially um we often did check the same that you did the ferritin and the ldh i think uh, the CRP has ended up being used in a lot of the trials, including the recovery trial and um, uh, some of the other trials for tocilizumab. I'll mention IL-6 was something that people used uh, in the past, but it's not clear that an IL-6 level correlates uh, to effectiveness with tocilizumab. And also the turnaround time is often a day or two or three to get those levels. So it's, it's really not practical. Okay, um, and Dr. Long, are you seeing any antiviral resistance with remdesivir, or do you think that antiviral cocktails may become necessary? You know, I'm gonna again pass this one. <laughs> Sorry to land this one on your lap, Dr. Alwater. I just, I, I don't, I don't think I can comment too much on this one. Yeah, I, I, we haven't seen that yet. Now, interestingly, where we got into trouble, for example, in influenza, was people that stayed on oseltamivir in a highly immunosuppressed patient for weeks and weeks, that you would get a breakthrough there and resistance. For the most part, people are using remdesivir because it's IV for five to 10 days. You know, even if someone has a high viral load and so on, um, there's just going to be less tendency. Now, I have to also say, I'm not sure we've been looking very hard, to be honest. So uh, typically, we do use combinations for, to treat viruses um, often. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll see. This may indeed be a practice. Unfortunately, we don't have enough antivirals at the moment uh, to really offer a combination approach. But it's a, it's a prescient question that uh, may be quite relevant down the road. Fantastic. Um, so many great questions, but we'll just ask a couple more here before we wrap this up, honor everybody's time. Um, Dr. Long, is proning still a standard practice? Yeah, proning is definitely a practice that I recommend for all our patients. We have uh, uh, um, worked with nursing. Um, obviously, it's really challenging for patients to stay in the prone position for prolonged periods. But we are—we've definitely observed improved oxygenation uh, doing this, and there is data to suggest a, a delaying need for uh, mechanical ventilation uh, with proning as well. So we—it is something that we're certainly still recommending, and and uh, for all of our patients. Okay, 
Um, another question is, when is an optimal time to initiate remdesivir? That's a great question. So if we look at, you know, the NIH guidelines and, and the, you know, the ACT-1 study, uh, it, it will specific, in our, in our institution, basically, if you get admitted and it's uh, in a five-day period, uh, we'll initiate remdesivir. The greatest amount of benefit, if we remember from the ACT-1 study, was for patients that were on, uh, on supplemental oxygen. I do think it's important that we initiate earlier rather than later because the benefit of remdesivir starts to fade as patients are more critically initiating and the inflammatory response has already taken place. Okay. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll just add ahead. a quick other aspect. Uh, you know, there weren't too many studies done in people early with remdesivir, so we, we don't really know. Probably the number needed to treat to someone not on oxygen is going to be really high. Um, and, and therefore, because so many people get better on their own. So we really don't know that role, but there are some uh, experimental oral antivirals. So we'll, we'll get more information on antivirals early in illness, hopefully the next few months. Great, thank you for that. Um, what uh, is the current recommendation regarding azithromycin for outpatient management? Maybe I'll take that one. Uh, you know, azithromycin was looked at in combination with hydroxychloroquine, um, and then also just some people used as an anti-inflammatory. Um, there are no recommendations currently for use uh, of either of those agents in outpatient. I think uh, that's been looked at hard enough in trials that really didn't show benefit. Okay, thank you for that. And I think this will be our final question. Um, are monoclonal antibodies used for patients who acquire COVID while they're in the hospital for something else? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, um, that is a loophole in the EUA. So if someone is admitted for GI bleeding um, and they test positive, but they have risk factors, um, potentially they could acquire the infusion if the hospital has it on hand. Uh, um, uh, so that's something we've talked about. It's actually not been done, as far as I know, in our hospital, but it may be a loophole in the EUA because you're not supposed to be admitted for COVID, you know, for hospitalized due to COVID. Okay. Well, that uh, does conclude our Q&A. Thank you uh, so much again for answering those questions for us. And for our audience, if you would like to claim credit, please click the claim credit button. It will appear when the webcast ends as well. And be on the lookout for our 30-day survey. You will get that through email. Um, and your responses, as always, will help us develop further education. So thank you so much for joining us. And Dr. Allwater, Dr. Long, can't thank you enough. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining.